chapter 1. During this Advent season, we are moving away from the Gospel of John and we'll be in Matthew. Uh, most of you know um, we try to keep our themes together, at least in one kind of cohesive thought uh, regarding what any one author might say. Makes it much easier on the um, person proclaiming God's Word because we're able to stay focused on the uh, meaning of the text from the meaning of the author. I know that's probably a strange concept for some, uh, that we don't let the Bible say what we think it says. We let the Bible and its author clearly communicate to us what it says about whatever subject that it is covering. And as Jared, as you heard Jared pray, we'll be covering this section uh, on the ancestry of Jesus. And you might say, well, I'm checking out now. Uh, uh, Hebrew toledot, uh, genealogy is not something I'm really interested in, and begats, those of us who had grew up KJV, and begat, and begat, and begat. Um, some of you know what I'm talking about, others are just like, I have no idea, he is speaking in tongues now. Um, it, it might seem rather boring, I encourage you to stay focused because it is not boring, it is very exciting. So as you heard, hear this read for you, please pay attention carefully to um, what it says regarding many of the characters that we'll examine this morning. Isaac, the father of Jacob, and Jacob, the father of Judah and his brothers. Judah was the father of Perez and Zerar by Tamar. Perez was the father of Hezron, and Hezron the father of Ram. Ram was the father of Aminadab, Aminadab the father of Nashon, and Nashon the father of Salmon. Salmon was the father of Boaz by Rahab, and Boaz was the father of Obed by Ruth, and Obed the father of Jesse. Jesse was the father of David the king. David was the father of Solomon by Bathsheba, who had been the wife of Uriah, and Solomon was the father of Rehoboam. Rehoboam, the father of Abjah, and Abjah the father of Asa. Asa was a father of Jehoshaphat, Jehoshaphat the father of Joram, and Joram the father of Uzziah. Uzziah was the father of Jotham, and Jotham the father of Ahaz, and Ahaz the father of Hezekiah. Hezekiah was the father of Manasseh, and Manasseh the father of Ammon, and Ammon the father of Josiah. Josiah became the father of Jeconiah and his brothers at the time of the deportation to Babylon. After the deportation to Babylon, Jeconiah became the father of Shatil, and Shatil the father of Zerubbabel. Zerubbabel was the father of Abihud, Abihud the father of Elikim, and Elikim the father of Azor. Azor was the father of Zadok, and Zadok the father of Akim, and Akim the father of Elihud. Elihud was the father of Elazar, Elazar the father of Matan, and Matan the father of Jacob. Jacob was the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, by whom Jesus was born, who is called the Messiah. So all the generations from Abraham to David are 14 generations. From David to the deportation to Babylon, 14 generations. And from the deportation to Babylon to the Messiah, 14 generations. This is the word of the Lord. Matthew 1, 1 through 17. I think we got it the first time, right? I don't want to hear it necessarily repeated, though. Tiffany Harley, when you see her, give her a uh, pat on the back, a firm handshake. Uh, she did a great job reading that. Those are not always easy to read some of those names. Uh, I remind you that the word of the Lord is inspired. Every, 
every jot and tittle. Uh, and all of it is valuable. It is profitable, Timothy tells us, for teaching, for exhortation, for training in righteousness. Uh, there is nothing that we want to leave out when we proclaim God's word. And in this ancestry of Jesus, I pray that we are able to see what this teaches us about Jesus who was called the Messiah. Uh, we learn in this section of scripture that it is Jesus, this Messiah, who rules on the throne of David. Not only does he rule on the throne of David, he will bless those who trust in him. There's a reason for Matthew telling us about what he tells us about regarding the lineage of Jesus. Uh, the title of this message and what you will see throughout this Advent season messages is Jesus who was called the, the Messiah. And although we don't see the word appearing in most of our English Bibles, Messiah, it's translated Christ. He is indeed the Messiah. He is indeed the promised one of Israel. Messiah, uh, the word again we hear translated Christ, means anointed. Um, it is clearly this Christ, as translated in the Septuagint, the Greek translation of the Old Testament, one who means Messiah. It's a designation for our Lord. This anointed one is coming. This anointed one who was proclaimed in the Old Testament is coming and he is going to do something. He is going to rule and reign after his father, David. He is also going to usher in this kingdom, a kingdom in his name and under his authority and power. And throughout Israel's history, they understood that. But what I think they failed to remember and what maybe sometimes we forget, even during this season, is why this king had to come. Why this king had to usher in this new kingdom. Because of what happened in Genesis chapter 3. The fall of man. That when Adam sinned, the second Adam had to come and reverse, recapitulate all the mistakes that Adam had made. And he fulfilled it perfectly. Genesis 3.15 is the key to all the Bible, in my humble opinion. The seed of the woman, the Messiah, is going to come and crush the seed of the serpent. All to the glory of God. I often hear people say, well, the Bible's about redemption, and it is. But it's much more about the glorification of God in the redemption of sinners. God being glorified, God being exalted. We are to walk away from the Bible impressed with God. Yes, we're impressed with our salvation, but we only have that because of God. Amen. And if we miss that, brothers and sisters, we have missed the thrust of the Bible. The Bible's not about you or me. It's about God. Amen. It's about God in a rescue mission for people like us. <laughs> Maybe you haven't been rescued. It don't sound very good to you. I've been rescued. Many of you have been rescued. And in this genealogy, we're able to see that God works in marvelous ways through the strangest of people. Some we like to emulate and some we'd say, man, I'd really like to be like him. Others, we may say, I'm not so sure about that one. This anointed one, this Messiah, we see referenced in the Old Testament the word anointed or one who was anointed. Pick up with me, if you will, in your thinking. Old Testament priests were referred to as being anointed. They were anointed ones. But not just priests. Kings are also referred to as being anointed. Finally, we see the office of prophet as one who has been 
anointed. Well, brothers and sisters, I would suggest to you that this anointed one, the anointed one, this Messiah, is the true priest, king, and prophet. Jesus, the Messiah, the anointed one. He is the designated one, promised of God to be the great deliverer. He is the preeminent one, altogether unique in his anointing as Messiah, as God. When we come and approach this book, it's always important for us to understand who's writing and why they're writing to the best of our ability, at least that we can understand. Matthew, a disciple of Jesus, he was a, a very, very popular Jewish religious leader, right? Not at all. He was a tax collector. Um, we know a little about tax collector, at least we've heard about him, right? With the picture going down to the IRS office. Well, that's exciting for you, isn't it? And picking a disciple from there as he is working. Uh, by the way, those tax collectors were low. That's so radically different than our world today, right? They're low, they're hated. Jesus chooses Matthew to be one of his disciples, and it is Matthew, that disciple, who writes this book. We see that Matthew, and we will find that throughout, only in the few chapters that we will study during this Advent season, but we'll see something that is a consistent theme throughout Matthew's gospel, which tells us who he's probably speaking to. He will consistently say, this happened that the word of the Lord might be fulfilled. Well, who would he say that to? What audience would be familiar with the word of the Lord, in particular the Old Testament? Jews. So we believe that Matthew was writing to maybe two groups. Seekers who are Jewish, who are seeking to understand, is this guy the real deal? Is he indeed the Messiah? It's probably, it may be that group or a group that is already believers who are Jewish and who want to get an understanding of their apologetic. They want to understand, is their basis for believing who Jesus really is solid? Is it on solid ground? Is it on firm footing? Matthew is going to say throughout, it is. It's not based on anything that I just thought up. It's not based on anything that Jesus just thought up. Everything that Jesus said and did is based in the Old Testament. Tells us the value of the Old Testament then and now. What do we assume about the reader? So we've talked about the writer. What does the reader expect? Well, we see a couple things about the reader. They hold the Bible in very high regard. They believe what the Bible says about a person. Secondly, we find that these readers are searching, looking for a Messiah. Jesus said these words in John 5, 39. You search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. What does Jesus say? It is these, the scriptures, Old Testament, that testify about me. They tell you who I am. You're searching for eternal life and you've missed him. He's right before you. The Bible testifies about, about Jesus. They have a high value of the authority of God's word and they're looking forward to a king. One commentator says these words, the central personality of the Old Testament prophecy is the coming of a great king who will rule in God's promised kingdom. Over and over, we are told of a special individual who has the righteousness, wisdom, power, and authority, the right to reign not only over Israel, but over the entire earth. That's who they're looking for. Now, there is some debate and some question. Now, remember, this is where it's so important for us to understand our Bibles. When Matthew comes along and Matthew begins to write, something has happened chronologically 
um, before this, before Matthew writes his gospel. Luke, right? Not Luke's writing, but Luke's story. What do I mean by that? This is where we got to put the synoptics together. Remember Luke introduces us first to who in the temple? Zacharias. He is serving there, and what happens to Zacharias that is mind-blowing? He gets an angelic visit saying, something's going to happen very, very special to you and your wife. And in the Greek language, he says, yeah, right. He doubts the angel, right? Remember that story in Luke chapter 1. But God had been silent for 400 years. He hasn't spoken through a prophet. Here's my point in that. Although the people were looking for a Messiah, do you think they really thought he was going to come in their lifetime? Probably not. Because it had been 400 years. We know a little about that, don't we? How many of you believe Jesus is actually coming back anytime soon? But we've got to wait, right? Don't count God's slackness as slowness, right? God is patient. But that all will come to repentance. But some don't. Hey, he's not coming. Come on. These people, yeah, the Messiah's coming, but ah, pie in the sky by and by. Matthew is saying, no, the Messiah has come. He has appeared. He is near, and he's going to rule and reign. The king is coming, Psalm 2, verses 6 through 8. But as for me, I've installed my king upon Zion, my holy mountain. I will surely tell of the decree of the Lord. He said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me, and I will surely give you the nations as your inheritance. This king who is coming is going to inherit not just Israel, but all the nations. Zechariah 9, verse 9. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout and triumphant triumphantly, daughter of Jerusalem, behold, your king is coming to you. He's just and endowed with salvation, humble and mounted on a donkey, even a colt, the foal of a donkey. This king is coming, Zechariah prophesied. It was realized, as we know, on Palm Sunday. The Magi, who we will hear about, where is he who has been born king of the Jews? This Matthew writes about Jesus, this Messiah, who is clear in who he is and what he has come to do. Matthew presents Jesus as exactly who he is, the promised Messiah. He is the sovereign one who has come to deliver his people from their sins. Matthew presents this Jesus as sovereign God and, sovereign and servant man. Matthew clearly points to Jesus being this Messiah. So what do we see in this genealogy? Please believe me, we're not going to go through each name. Some of you probably got nervous and said, oh boy, it's going to be a long one. We're not going to go through each name, but we are going to pick on some names. We see the royal ancestry of Jesus, the Messiah, David. What do we see from the very beginning in verse 1? This is the record of the genealogy of Jesus, the Messiah, son of David. What significance does that have for us as we see uh, Matthew here mentioning David. Well, we see here from 2 Samuel uh, chapter 7, verses 13 through 16, he shall build a house for my name. I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be a father to him and he will be a son to me. When he does wrong, I will discipline with the rod of men and with strokes of the sons of mankind. But my favor shall not depart from him as I took it away from Saul whom I removed from, from you. Your house and your kingdom shall endure before me 
forever. Your throne shall be established forever. This son of David, this royal ancestor, this Messiah of David is going to be a permanent king. He is never going to, he is never going to fall away. I am never going to leave him. This is in the Messiah's lineage. He's the son of David. This permanent kingdom where God promised in this covenant ritual with David, I'm going to be with you. You're going to have a king on the throne forever. And we know that that can't be a normal man. Why? The word forever. Who is the one who can rule and reign forever? It obviously can't be a temporal man, a fallen man who's going to die. Can't be Solomon. We know that. It's going to be one who was promised who will come later. The throne of his kingdom will be forever. He's a permanent king. We see this in Luke chapter 1. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and give birth to a son, and you shall name him Jesus. He will be great and will be called the son of the most high. The Lord God will give him the throne of his father, David. He will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and his kingdom will have no end. This is the fulfillment of that, the angelic hosts say. This is who this Jesus is. This is who this Messiah is. He is the royal line, royal lineage of David. He comes from good stock. He is the king. Not only is he a permanent king, he has a perpetual kingdom. Look down there at verse 16. Your throne shall be established forever. Jesus' kingdom will continue to roll on like a great and mighty river, and nothing will stop it. It's a perpetual kingdom. It is ongoing. Now, here's what's hard for us because we don't see that kingdom in our world today. It's alive and it's well, brothers and sisters. The gates of Haiti, Matthew 16, will not prevail against the kingdom, i.e. the church of God, the ecclesia, the body of believers that have been securely brought into Christ's kingdom. Nothing's going to stop his kingdom. It doesn't look like it because we're not very impressive today, are we? We don't seem to be impressive today. We are impressive. Why? Because he is with us and it's his kingdom. His kingdom continues to grow and mature. You don't have to, and I know we get discouraged by what we see in maybe in the West or what we read in our own local newspapers, in our own communities and the lack of church attendance maybe we see in our world today. But the church is growing. The kingdom of God is growing. People are coming to Christ, maybe not here, but around the world it's amazing the places that we see in North Korea and China still. We see these great movements of God in the continent of Africa. People are being saved. You can smile now, brothers and sisters. People are still coming to Christ. He is still bringing about his kingdom. This royal ancestry of David is going to be a permanent king, the Messiah, Jesus. It's a perpetual kingdom where Jesus is ruling and reigning. I love this in Isaiah 9. There will be no end to the increase of his government of peace or the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish and uphold it with justice and righteousness. From then on forevermore, the zeal of the Lord, excuse me, the zeal of the Lord of the armies will accomplish this. It's going to happen. Man, don't we get so upset with the leaders and leadership that we see in our world? Isn't it wonderful to know for those of us who are believers that we have one who is upholding this kingdom with justice and righteousness? That he can be trusted. We live in a world where we can't trust leadership. That is one that we can indeed trust who will never fail us and never leave us. This royal ancestry of Jesus the Messiah, David. Not only that, we see the covenant ancestry of Jesus the Messiah, Abraham. Look at the end there of verse 1. He's not only the son of David, he is the son 
of Abraham, the covenant ancestry of Jesus the Messiah. I wish we had the time to go through all of Abraham's life. We obviously don't. Here we see what's called um, really this unilateral covenant that God makes with Abraham. Unilateral means what? One working. I am going to do this through you, Abraham. Look at what God says to Abraham. Yahweh says, now the Lord said to Abram, go from your country and from your relatives and from your father's house to a land which I will show you. And I will make you into a great nation and I will bless you and make your name great. And you shall be a blessing. And I will bless those who bless you and the one who curses you, I will curse. And in you, all the families of the earth will be blessed. Genesis 12, one through three. This covenant ancestor of the Messiah, Abraham, has given this covenant from God. Land, seed, and blessing, sometimes it's referred to. I'm gonna give you land, your seed's gonna be great, and those whom you bless, I'm going to bless. Now, what's the problem with Abraham at, Abram at this juncture? He has no seed. And it's not coming anytime soon. He doesn't know that. It's going to take some time. Abram's going to make some serious mistakes. But does God fulfill his promise? He absolutely does. This seed, this covenant relationship, that God has with Abraham is going to be fulfilled in the Messiah. Think about it, brothers and sisters. Jesus is the fulfillment of the promise of the land which I will show you. Well, what kind of land has Jesus been given that is increasing? Is it physical? It's not physical. It's not in, you know, Utah or the great state of Indiana. Our home is in the heavens I go, we looked at that in John 14, and prepare a place for you. The land that God promised is greater than the one that the covenant community was expecting. The, you know, as they entered into the land to, to, to go into God's rest, Hebrews 4. It's greater than that. It's heaven. I, I promised you a place where all your people will be, and they will come and gather, not just an in-gathering, but an up-gathering. They're going to look up towards me. I am bringing all your kingdom citizens in through your rule and reign, through your sacrifice to this new land, this new home in heaven. Don't we read about that? When John sees this wonderful vision of a new heaven and a new earth descending. And who's that new heaven and new earth filled with, brothers and sisters? Sinners like us. All because of this covenant relationship, this fulfillment of the Messiah, this new land. It's not just a land. It's also a promising and making you a great nation of all kinds of people. Look around this room and consider the backgrounds of people in this room. Who wants to stand up and give testimony where they were when they came to know Jesus? Crickets. We don't like to think about that, do we? But God has used all kinds of people, all kinds of nations, Love that scene in Revelation 5. I looked around the throne room of God and I see nations, tribes, and tongues worshiping the Lamb. He is going to make a great nation, not just of Israel, but of the whole world. Can you imagine, brothers and sisters, what, what heaven's going to look like? I, I just picture it in my sanctified imagination. People in like in their native like dress. You know, and they're just worshiping God with their hands. And we're not caught up in their dress. You know, they got loafers over here and sandals over here and some are barefoot over there. 
Some got dashikis on. But they're all worshiping the lamb. There's, there, there's this wonderful picture of I am going to make you into a great nation. The last piece. You will bless, be a blessing to all the peoples of the earth. Think about that. It was always God's plan for the nation of Israel to bless the entire world. It was always the mission of God for the people of God to go to a lost and dying world and be a light to the Gentiles. How did Israel do with that? They didn't do very well, did they? They didn't represent Yahweh. They weren't good kingdom citizens. God called them to go. If you got your Bibles, let's turn really, really quickly to Acts chapter 10. Acts 10. Now, in this context, this is, a, this is Peter. And Peter has just had this vision of, of eating um, uh, and this sheet coming down. Most of us know the story, right? And all these unclean animals there, what is Peter told to do? Get a knife and fork out, eat, enjoy it, have a BLT. Peter, Peter, said, Peter said, no, I can't eat a BLT. I can't eat these things. They, they are unclean. And what does God say? What I have called clean, you don't call unclean. And that's symbolic of the message of the gospel that was initially given just to Israel that it is going to the Gentiles. Pay attention to this in verse 34 and 35. Opening his mouth, Peter has an understanding now that the gospel is for everyone. Opening his mouth, Peter said, I most certainly understand now that God is not one to show partiality. Listen to this. But in every nation, the man who fears him and does what is right is welcome to him. It's not just the Jews. It's not just Americans. It's not just our ethnicity. It's all who do what? Who does what is right. He will be welcomed by him who fears God. Reverent fear for God. Look at what the Gentile response is. Go up to John, uh, Acts 13, and look in verse 44. Acts 13, 44. So not only is Peter preaching this, Paul has been preaching this. The next Sabbath, uh, nearly the whole city assembled to hear the word of the Lord. But when the Jews saw the crowds, they were filled with jealousy and began contradicting the things spoken by Paul. They were blaspheming. Paul and Barnabas spoke out boldly and said, it is necessary that the word of God be spoken to you first. Since you repudiate it and judge yourselves unworthy of eternal life, behold, we are turning to the Gentiles. For so the Lord has commanded us, I have placed for you as a light for the Gentiles so that you may bring salvation to the ends of the earth. Look at verse 48. When the Gentiles heard this, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord. And as many had been appointed to eternal life, did what? Believed. The word of God is for us too. It's not just for the Jews. It's for us Gentiles as well. They began rejoicing. Brothers and sisters, who was the word of God not for in our world today? But how do we treat it? Don't we think... They're not worthy of me sharing the gospel. Those kinds of people aren't worthy for me to tell about the good news of who Jesus is. Think about that. I am not going to share with them the message of salvation because of their lifestyle choices. 
because of their political affiliations, maybe because of their skin color. I, I am not going to deal with those kinds of people. They don't need the gospel. They're not worthy of it. And many of us say, I would never think that. Oh, yeah? What about a radicalized Muslim? What about a flaming, as they're sometimes referred to, homosexual? They worthy of the gospel? Who is not worthy of the gospel, brothers and sisters? Who's beyond the power of the gospel, brothers and sisters? No one. Is there anybody? The only thing that keeps you from the kingdom is your unbelief. We ought to have the message of the kingdom that God is reconciling sinners to himself to anyone who will listen. I'm not going to sit here and blow smoke and want you to think that they're all going to believe it. Or they're all going to accept it or be excited as these Gentiles were to rejoice at it. That's not on you. What's on you is to proclaim that message to them. Should they rejoice in it, that gets glory gets to God. Should they reject it, that's to their own demise. We see that with the Jews. But it's our responsibility, brothers and sisters, to be that light, to be that promise, be part of that promise of being a blessing to the people on the earth. And I honestly wonder this, brothers and sisters, pause for a moment, get, get beyond the, the season, get beyond whatever might be going on in your world today, and ask yourself, have I been a blessing to the nations through my proclamation of the gospel to them, to my living life before them? Or do people even know that I'm a Christian? Do they even know that I belong to this kingdom? I, I often hear, I'm just, I just shake my head, you know, um, you know, share the gospel. And these little mantras just, just drive me crazy. Share the gospel, and if it's possible, use words. What? BCV, book, chapter, verse. Share the gospel, and if possible, use words. How else would you share it? How is a person going to know simply from your life being a good person that you serve a risen Savior and he's in the world today? Are you being a blessing to the nations? Has Christ been a blessing to you? Absolutely. And he is a blessing to the world through using sinners such as ourselves. Wow, getting bogged down too much. Covenant ancestry, Abraham. Royal ancestry, David. Incredible ancestry of Jesus. Man, look at these names. Tamar, Rahab, Ruth, Bathsheba, Mary. Now, I want you to think about this for a moment, brothers and sisters. If you were a good Jew writing, and you're going to start writing women's names down, how many of you would start here? I'm just saying, I would use Sarah, Rebecca, Rachel, and Leah. Those are the names I would use. Those are good, wholesome Jewish ladies. Especially, I am introducing the lineage of the Messiah. I want you to believe in him, so I've got to paint the picture. Look at this beautiful ancestry. Rachel. I might throw a Hannah in there. A Deborah, I even thought Deborah in. I'm going to get Deborah in there too. Man, look at this Messiah's lineage. Tamar? 
Rahab, Ruth, Bathsheba. Uh, Holy Spirit, are you sure? Season three of um, a PBS series called Finding Your Roots. Uh, Henry Louis Gates, uh, professor at Harvard, does backgrounds on genealogy studies on stars, famous people. He was preparing um, to do, start the third season with a person, but he gets an email from this person because they had done, they had recorded the show, but this person who was fairly famous realized that they had slavery, slave owners in their background and commented to Brother Gates, hey, I'm kind of popular. I wouldn't want the world to know that my family was slave owners. Hey, so do you mind if we leave that out of my genealogy? He does. And he's reprimanded. And that star was Ben Affleck. So I don't want people to know that my family has roots in slavery and we're slave owners. We might think for the Messiah, I wouldn't want them to know that, wait a second, this, this Tamar, this first woman mentioned here in Genesis 38, um, was Judah's daughter-in-law who's, um, uh, she, uh, uh, it's getting hot in here. Um, she dressed and played the role of a prostitute and slept with her father-in-law and got pregnant. Uh, Holy Spirit, can we, can we leave that one out? Nope. Tamar does what she does. And what's amazing, if you read Genesis 38, what Judah says to her, he says, you're more righteous than me. And she's placed in this genealogy, this lineage of Jesus, the Messiah. Why would Matthew put her out there like that? Why would he put this in the story? Why? Well, we would think it would get better. Surely Matthew will redeem himself as he mentions Rahab. And we know Rahab from Joshua chapter 2 when the spies come, two of the spies come into the promised land to do some reconnaissance. They are met by Rahab and her, uh, she's a, uh, how can we say it nicely? A lady of the evening. Her house is down in that area of town. She's a prostitute. She's a Gentile prostitute at that. She's a Canaanite. She looks out for these two spies. She secures her, not only her own salvation, the salvation of her family as well as the Israelites come in and just completely destroy Jericho. Strange, strange addition. Why is this alien Canaanite prostitute mentioned in the lineage of the Messiah? Ruth, this third woman, and we know Ruth's story, and most of us are saying, come on, you can't surely indict Ruth. Man, look at what she does. Well, we don't indict Ruth per se, but Ruth is a Moabite. And we learn from Deuteronomy 23 that Moabites, who were very sexually perverted, were not allowed to be in the kingdom for 10 generations. You cannot be in Israel's covenant community. No, you're not coming in. You're excluded from that. She's a good woman. She's a Moabite. Those people were not to be in the kingdom 
of God in terms of Israel. Why is she, this beautiful woman from a cursed tribe, mentioned in the lineage of the Messiah? Well, even this fourth woman we might ask questions because if you have an ESV and you heard Tiff read, New American Standard actually has her name, Bathsheba. ESV doesn't even say her name. It just says the wife of Uriah. Now, why might the writer say just the wife of Uriah? Maybe he wants to look out for David. Uh, you know, I don't want to remind people, you know, I'm going to say the second, you know, well, I was going to say the second wife of David. That would not be true. David had a few under his belt as well, right? A lot of wives. He mentions Bathsheba, who had been Uriah's wife. This woman that David got pregnant while she was married, this woman who David murders her husband or is responsible for his death. He takes her as his own wife. This woman who, because of this sinful relationship, has their baby die. Why mention these women? Why mention Mary later on who will get into her life? Why mention these ladies? I think there's a couple things we want to remind ourselves. Number one, in Christ's kingdom, there will be the inclusion of the morally outcast. In the lineage of Christ, there are those who were morally jacked up. Here's what's funny to me as I studied this. This is just like, David, you're so messed up. When I start to look at the list, who jumps off the page in terms of morally jacked up? These ladies. Who doesn't? When I spoke about David, what did I say? Did I mention his moral infractions, his sins? Wouldn't one of it, who would want a son like David? Now that I've said that, you're saying, well, now that you put it that way. <laughs> but we look at David as a standard, right? Oh, David's a good guy. But these prostitutes, these foreigners, David, I saw his kill in his thousands and I have killed my ten thousands. Oh, who shall defile the army of the Lord, Goliath? Ah, that David we like. Hey, Uriah. This note here, I've got a very important note. Now, don't open it. Can you take that to your commander, please? Those of us who know the story, what was in that note? Put him on the front lines and let him die. That David. See, I start picking and choosing and say, well, David's not that bad compared to a Diana prostitute. A sister-in-law who slept with her father-in-law. But David's a good guy. Brothers and sisters, we look at the lineage of Christ... Aren't they all jacked up? Isn't Abraham jacked up? Alvin, is that your wife? Uh, no. Who king? No. Ain't my wife. That's my sister. Katie would like that, wouldn't you, sister? Abraham's a liar. We want to talk about the other things that he did. My point is, brothers and sisters, within this genealogy of Christ, everybody's a sinner. They're all morally reprehensible, and they all do things that are obviously very sinful before God. A couple things we see. The inclusion of the ethnic outcast, this Moabitess. There are no groups that will not be included in the kingdom of God. 
There are no people that are outside the purview of the gospel. The gospel is going to include all kinds of people, which ought to be very encouraging us to a world that is increasingly more divided. You guys have heard it over the last few years that America is becoming more ethnically divided than ever before. I disagree with that, by the way. And we want to have all kinds of programs and we want to do and say all sorts of things that are going to remedy this. I've said it for 20 years now and I'll continue to say until the Lord calls me home. The only answer to those things is the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. That at the foot of the cross, brothers and sisters, we are all equal. We are all in need of a savior. Jesus is going to usher in other ethnicities and other groups into the kingdom. It's in his background. It's in his DNA in a sense. Finally, the inclusion of the feminine outcast. I don't need to tell you how women were perceived. Read the book of Judges. You don't have to get very far in the Bible to see that it is very patriarchal, very male-dominated. Women aren't considered very much. Boy, that has radically changed in the church today. Women aren't valued. Women aren't considered. You know, I know I was once one of those guys. Women, uh, come on, we got the kids ministry. Kids, right? In the kitchen. Kids, kitchen. KK, we'll keep it together. KK. Some of y'all know what I'm talking about. You grew up the same way. We need you to teach the kids theology. No, come on, come on. No. Our daily bread. Just stick with our daily bread stuff. You guys don't need no deep, don't need no. You don't need any deep theology, ladies. Leave that for us big boys. How foolish is that? Jesus values women in ministry. And you say, well, what, David, why are you harping on this? Because the church continues to get indicted for the treatment of women. Now, I want to say this before people start getting nervous. I'm still very complimentarian. I am what the Bible says we should be. But that doesn't mean we poo-poo women. We shove them off to the side and don't value their opinion. We do. Women get a little less of the spirit than us, right, guys? Not at all. We all value women. Jesus valued women in his ministry. The Apostle Paul valued women in his ministry. Churches always valued women in the ministry. I come from a background, there wouldn't be no church if it weren't for women. Strong African-American women drove our church when I was growing up. If it wasn't for those ladies, there, there would have been no church. I'm just being honest. They were taking the kids. They were doing that. They were teaching the Sunday schools. They were enforcing that kind of stuff. It was those ladies. There is no outcast within the community, covenant community of God. The morally outcast are accepted here. They can be forgiven here. There is no ethnic group that this church is exclusive or any church is exclusively trying to reach. And we don't exclude people because of their gender. The word of the Lord, this wonderful, wonderful Messiah that is coming as he is enthroned and exalted as he is looked upon, this royal king, this covenant king has these ladies and has these people in the background that are morally unacceptable, yet they're in his community, they're in his family. Isn't that us? 
We were once some of these kinds of people doing some of these sorts of things, but we have been brought into the kingdom of God. What about you this morning? What keeps you from the kingdom of God? What keeps you from entering and believing that this is indeed the Messiah, the one who is the king of all? Not just a babe in the manger, but a babe who has come to die and to rule and reign as our king. Is he your king this morning? Is he your ruler this morning? Is he your Messiah, your deliverer, your rescuer? your sovereign Lord and King. Let's pray together. Father, we often sing here, Jesus Messiah, name above all names. Jesus, we thank you that your title is Messiah, anointed one, that's who you are. And we thank you, we thank you that you have rescued us and that you have delivered us, that you have brought us into your kingdom. We celebrate being in this wonderful family of God. We would pray, oh God, that you would usher in more and more and more, that men and women would see that the separation that exists between them is not due to their gender or their ethnicity, their lifestyle, it's because of their sin. They need a savior. Lord, let them feel the depth of their estrangements, of the distance between them and you. May you reconcile them to yourself. And Father, thank you for being pleased to use people like us. You use lost and dying men and women to rescue lost and dying men and women. Thank you, Father, that you have given us this clarion call, this clear message that a Savior has come that a Savior is alive, and that a Savior is returning. Hallelujah. What a Savior. In Jesus' name, amen. For those of you